You know, I think it goes without saying that if you're going to win the game, you're going to have to train, right? If you're going to win the game, you're going to have to train. If you're going to win the war, you have to be prepared to face the enemy. Do you understand when it comes to really hard or complex or dangerous things in life, you have got to be trained and you have got to be prepared. Agreed? Everybody knows this. And my point is very simply this, for the game and the war and the combat that life in a fallen world is, you also need to be trained and prepared. Because you understand, beloved, life is war. It is war. It isn't only that, but it is always that. Life is hard. Life is dangerous. Life is complex. And for the bloody battle that life in a fallen world is, you also have to be prepared. And you understand, unless we get the kind of training and preparation we need for this war that life is, unless we get that training, there's no way we don't become apostate and walk away from Christ. There's no way on our own we can persevere in our faith firm until the end. There's no way. Not with sin. And the devil and the pressures of a fallen world always with their hands about our throat. We're just not going to persevere and make it to the end. Unless. Unless. We get the kind of training we need. Now believe it or not, the kind of training we need to maintain our faith and not become apostate. Get a load of this. It is theology. It is theology. I'm not even kidding. Theology is the training we need to fight the fight of faith and persevere firm until the end. And when I say theology, I do not mean the theoretical stuff that you study for a quiz. Rather, I mean glorious biblical realities that reinforce the soul. I mean truths from the pages of Scripture that alter and change the way you interpret the universe. I'm talking about things that God has revealed in His Word, so astounding in their power that should you know them and believe them and cling to them in the moment, your faith in Christ remains profoundly unshaken. And we know that is what you need for the war that life is because that is exactly what the prophet Isaiah gives his people. He gives them theology. In fact, in chapters 40 through the end of the book, Isaiah puts his foot all the way down on the pedal of theology and he refuses to use the brakes. He doesn't give his audience soft, non-theological cushions of warmth. He doesn't give them stupid cliches and cheesy platitudes about how to look on the bright side of life. 
No, he fills the canon of his pen with explosive, life-altering truths. And then he lights the fuse. Because that's what you give to a people, brittle in faith and crushed in spirit. You give them theology because a people, brittle in faith and crushed in spirit, are exactly the people to whom Isaiah is writing, at least in chapters 40 through 66. See, these aren't people who just had a bad week. These are people who had a bad century. Because who they were and where they were was 120 years in the future, 2,000 miles away, languishing in Babylon in captivity. They were ripped from their homes, shackled and chained and dumped in a ghetto made for the Jews. You understand, that's not a problem. That is a crisis. A staggering theological crisis that calls God's word into question, that makes his promises hang in the balance. And the worst part of all was, it was all their fault. They blew it. They got in bed with idols. They trusted in foreign nations. They shattered the covenant, and now here they are, without a land, without a king, without a temple, under the thumb of the greatest superpower the world has ever seen. Well, that's great. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? You go to class. You get some training. Some biblical and theological training. Because that's what you need when staring down the barrel of fear and unbelief. That's what you need, what we need for every moment, for crisis pressure moments. If we're going to keep our faith intact and not become apostate, what we need in those moments is theology. Staggering theological realities that reinforce the soul with bulletproof steel. That's what Isaiah gives to them, and that is what he gives to us. And so here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text four certainties. Four theological certainties that fortify our faith, that satisfy our souls, and that notify the wicked that the wrath of God is coming. That's where we're going. Four theological certainties that fortify our faith. You want that. That satisfy our souls. You want that. And that notify the wicked that the wrath of God is coming. Certainty number one. Certainty Number one, the global restoration by the servant. The global restoration by the servant, because there is a reason you understand why some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. And the reason they do is because so much of Isaiah's prophetic work and ministry is spent unfolding the Messiah 700 years before he ever even showed up to the planet. Because you understand what the book of Isaiah is, why it's in your Bible, is it reveals a a salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. That is the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, the Savior to come, the Messiah, has many names and titles by which he is called. He is called Emmanuel, God is with us. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
He is the offspring of David, the king from David's line. And yet here, starting in chapter 2, the title which Isaiah gives to the king and Messiah to come, get a load of this, is the servant. The servant. And we see him in verses 1 through 4. Look at the text. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have, or better, I will put my spirit upon him, because he hadn't come yet at this time, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. In truth, he will bring forth justice, but he will not be disheartened. He will not be crushed until he brings justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his law. Who is this servant to come? Clearly, he's the star of the show. The centerpiece of the plan. The very savior of the human race itself. And yet the question is why? Why out of all the titles that God could give the king and Messiah to come, why does he call him a servant? Why a servant? Because he is a king. Isaiah 33, 18. He is a shepherd. Ezekiel 37, 24. He is the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13. He is the Messiah, Psalm 2. He is a priest, Psalm 110. And yet here he is a servant. Meaning what? It means very simply that this is a hero and king un unlike all other heroes and kings. You see, here is one, as the servant, he serves his people by entering into the fray of a fallen world and saves his people from the inside out. This is one who serves his people by saving his people, and he serves his people by suffering for his people, by being slaughtered for his people. And this just so obviously has to be Christ himself, does it not? It has to be. In fact, Matthew chapter 12 connects the dots. After quoting this very text, it applies it to Jesus Christ. And Christ himself declared, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is so Philippians 2, isn't it? That although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and took the form of a doulos, of a slave. This is Jesus Christ in the text 700 years before he ever even arrived to the planet. And notice, notice there in verse 1, the relationship of Yahweh to the servant. You can see protection, selection, and affection. Look at the text, verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, there's protection, my chosen one there is selection and then notice in whom my soul delights affection this isn't some petty intern or, or angel sent to save the human race no this is the very son of the father whom he loves with infinite trinitarian affection and, and, and notice notice the mission to which isaiah sends him 
The, the mission is not to fix a few leaks or patch a few tears, but notice, to even bring restoration to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at the end of verse 1. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him. Here it is. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at the end of verse 3. In truth, he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not rest until he brings justice on the earth. That's the mission of the servant. Justice, global justice. And you can totally tell, you can totally tell that that is the mission. And yet, what global justice in the Bible means is A, radically different than modern day definitions of justice. And B, Staggering and comprehensive in its scope. In fact, what that word justice really means, according to the Bible, get this, is the reversal of the fall and the return to perfection. That's what that word is referring to. I said it before, that Hebrew word mishpat or justice is literally to bring order out of chaos. It is to take what is chaotic and disordered and mutilated and backwards and twisted, which is everything today, and to bring it to a perfect state of order and equilibrium. It is to bring all things back to their original God-ordained design. That is justice. So you understand, church, a new world order is coming. Yes, yes. D does Christ rule all things today? Absolutely he does. But when he arrives, he will rule all things in a different way. He will break the back of evil. He will lift the curse of sin. He will impose his power upon the world and make it what it was supposed to be in the beginning. This is nothing less than a global restoration, you understand. And that's helpful for us. That is very practical for us to think about that, that, that things will not always be as they are right now. And what this future global restoration does, listen carefully, is that it keeps us from getting a little too attached to the world in its current condition, doesn't it? And number two, it makes us look forward to a new world in which things are as they ought to be. Notice verses five through seven. Five through seven. Notice how far down, notice how far down the restoration of the servant will go, namely into the human heart itself. In other words, listen carefully. The rule, the future rule and reign of the Messiah won't be merely an imposition of his power that forces rebels to comply against their will. It will not merely be that. Rather, the Messiah is going to create a new humanity that gladly submits to his will. Look at verses 6 and 7. Still Yahweh speaking to the servant. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you notice as a covenant for the people. As a light to the nations. To do what? To open blind eyes. To bring forth the prisoner from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the house of imprisonment. I mean, you see what this is, don't you? 
Again, this is staggering. This is Yahweh speaking to the servant. This is inner Trinitarian dialogue that we're allowed to eavesdrop in on. And you notice the elaboration of the servant's mission there in verse 6. Yahweh says to the servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you notice as a covenant for the people, as a light to the nations. What does that even mean? Meaning what? A covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Meaning what? Meaning that, listen carefully, that part of the mission of the servant is to create a new humanity. How do we know that? Look at verse 7. I'm sending you to the world to open blind eyes, to bring forth the prisoner from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the house of imprisonment. You understand, that is the human race right now. All are born blind and dead and damned and helpless, and yet they won't always be that way. And you are not that way now if you have been saved by Jesus Christ. And that is exactly the point. To be a light to the nations, to be a covenant of the people, is simply a dense theological way to say that he will be the source of salvation itself. Think about it. The servant Jesus Christ is coming to make a new reality, to make a new cosmos, to make a new humanity. The blind will see, slaves will be free. Those who dwell in, in dungeons of darkness will be unchained. You see what those pictures are, don't you? Those are all pictures of regeneration. Those are all pictures of being born again. Do you see that there? The sovereign awakening of the soul from spiritual death and slavery to sin. This is what Jesus Christ does. And although Yahweh doesn't say here how he will free people from the dungeon of sin, when we get to chapter 53, he does explain, doesn't he? That he will save his people by suffering for his people. He will deliver his people from the prison of sin by the price of his own blood. That is how this works. And so you could just see, right? This isn't just theology. This is the kind of theology that changes you, isn't it? Why? Because what we are seeing in the text, listen carefully, don't, don't miss this. What we are seeing in the text is what the Bible means by the glory of Christ. When we talk about the glory of Christ, this is what we're talking about. Seeing his, his future achievements put on display. In fact, this is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he talks about the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does that mean? It means the glory of God is most visible and tangible in and through his Son. It means that if we want to see most clearly what God is like, all we need to do is look at his son. And why seeing clear, beautiful, riveting, glorious portrayals of Christ in the Bible matters. Why we need stuff like this, beloved, is because the more glory you see of who Christ is, the more you are transformed into his image. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 
If you want to be different and you want to live different, you don't just act different. No, you make Jesus Christ the object of your daily contemplation. So husbands and dads, if you want to be selfless, sacrificial, and serving and loving men in your home, what do you need to do but to fix your eyes on the greatest servant in history, Jesus Christ himself? If you want to be a person of fearless faith and radical hope, no longer held captive to anxiety and fear, what do you do but fix your eyes on the great servant Jesus Christ who will end the reign of terror in the world? If you want to be a person for whom the pleasures of lust or greed grow weaker and weaker by the day to trap you and ensnare you, what must you do but every single day put before your eyes the worth and beauty of the servant, Jesus Christ? The question is how? How do we know with absolute certainty that everything God just described is actually going to go down the way God describes it. How do we know? How do we know that the plan of the servant will succeed and that he will return and have his undisputed kingdom on the earth? How do we know that? Two reasons. The first is verse 8. Look at the text. Here's how we know the plan of the servant can and will succeed. Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory, I, my, I will not give to another, nor my praise to images. Do you see why this verse is here? It's not randomly placed. It's there because Yahweh is telling us that the deepest reason we know that the plan of the servant cannot possibly fail is his own commitment to his own glory. That is our assurance. Reason number two, verse nine. The former things, behold, they have come. New things I am declaring before they spring up. I make them known to you. Do you see the reason? How we know the future is secure. How do we know? Because the sovereignty and mastery of Yahweh over history and the future, that's how we know. You understand, beloved, this is not a God who merely knows what will happen. This is a God who has decreed what will happen. And that right there fortifies our faith, satisfies our souls, and notifies the wicked of the wrath of God to come. Certainty number two. Certainty number two. I call the glorious celebration of the nations. The glorious celebration of the nations. Because you understand, don't you, that when fear and gloom are strong in the soul, it is because faith is weak. When fear and gloom are strong in the soul, it is because faith is weak. It means that your faith is starving and famished. Not for superficial, sentimental platitudes that have no power, but rather for rich, red, meat, calorie-laden protein of sound theology, and in particular of eschatology, which is exactly what we have. Look at verses 10 through 13. You know what this is? This is a picture. This is a glimpse of what the world will be like 
after the servant arrives. Look at the text. Sing to Yahweh a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. Those who go down to the sea and what fills it, the coastlands and those who dwell in them. The wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, even the courts where Kedar is dwelling. Those who dwell, I know it says Selah there, but the word is literally rock. I think it means a cave. Those who dwell in caves, let them shout for joy. Those at the top of the mountains, let them shout. Let them give glory to Yahweh and let the coastlands declare his praise. Yahweh will come forth literally like a warrior. Like a man of war, he will arouse his zeal. He will shout for joy. He will utter a shout and he will show himself superior over his enemy. I mean, you see what this is, don't you? This is future. This has not happened yet. But it will happen when the servant arrives. You see this, right? Notice, notice. Verse 10, singing and praise. Verse 11, lifting of the voice, shouting of joy. Verse 12, glory to Yahweh. The coastlands declare his praise. What is being described? what the earth will be like when the servant arrives. It's very, it's very logical, very chronological. The servant arrives, verses 1 through 9. Here is the result in verses 10 through 13. This is what Isaiah means in verse 10 when he, by this global summons to sing, look at the text, verse 10, sing to Yahweh a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. Think about what Isaiah is doing here. He's not talking to us in this room. He's not. He's not speaking to the people of his own day. He's not speaking to the people trapped in Babylon. Do you know who he is talking to? He is talking to the nations. To the ends of the earth in the future after the servant arrives to build his kingdom. And, and notice what he tells, what he summons all the earth to do. Notice, to sing a new song, a new song. Do you see the connection with verse 9? Look at verse 9. New things I declare to you. Here, sing to Yahweh a new song. Meaning what? What's the connection? That can't be a mistake. Same word, right? Identical. Right next to one another. The point is, the content of the songs we will sing and the lyrics of the hymns we will write in the future will be composed when we see the glory of the servant. Does that make sense? And look from where the songs and praise will come, verse 10, from the ends of the earth. Those who go down to the sea, that's not scuba divers, that's sailors who go far away on distant lands. The coastlands, those who dwell in them, you understand in the Hebrew mind, those are all designations of the most remote, exotic, faraway places that the Hebrews could think of. The absolute other side of the world, and the point is, even they, on the total other side of the world, one day even they will be singing songs of praise to Yahweh. Do you see what he's picturing here? Verse 11, even nomads in the desert, 
People who live in the middle of the desert, even they will com compose songs to Yahweh in the day of the servant. And then notice, even the courts where Kedar inhabits. That means nothing to us. What is Kedar? Do you know what that is? That's Saudi Arabia. That's the ancient word for the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Even they one day will shout for joy. The, the, Saudi Arabia is where Christianity is illegal, where Islam, 99% strong, covers the people in oppressive spiritual darkness. But in the day of the great servant, even in the royal courts of Arabia, they will sing songs to Jesus Christ. And as he's just looking, he's scouring in the most remote parts of the earth that in the future will celebrate the songs of the songs for the servant. Verse 11, those who dwell in caves, those who live on the top of the mountains. I mean, do, do you see what he is describing here? This is not what the earth is like now, but it is what the earth will be like one day after the servant arrives. Do you see? Things will not always be as they are now. Verse 12, the crowning, culminating picture of the future, this planet filled with songs of joy, let them, that is the nations, let them bring glory to Yahweh and let the coastlands declare his praise. Do you see the connection back to verse 8? Look at the connection. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to images. Here, glory to Yahweh, praise among the nations. What is the point? The point is, the mission of the servant will be to restore the glory and praise of Yahweh back to where it should be, namely at the center of all reality. Do you see, that's the mission of the servant. That is the ultimate objective of the mission of Jesus Christ, to restore the glory of God to its rightful place, namely at the center of reality. Because you understand, don't you, the, the plan of God is not merely about your personal forgiveness, although that's included. Christ did not come merely to make us happy with feelings of security, but to repair the damage we had done to the glory of God. That's why. That's the mission of the servant, to restore the glory and praise of God to where it rightfully belongs, namely at the center of all reality. The question is why? The question is how, actually? How is this going to happen? How is God going to restore his glory and praise to the center of reality where it ought to be? How is he going to do this? Let's put it this way. He's not going to say please. Look at verse 13. Yahweh will come forth like a warrior. Like a man of war, he will arouse his zeal. He will utter a war cry. He will show himself superior over his enemies. That is how it is going to get done, beloved. There's, there's no avoiding this. This is how God is going to change the planet from what it currently is 
into what it ought to be, namely, namely, judgment and war and the unleashing of his wrath. You see that, right? There in 13. Look at the language. This is not the God of Hallmark card theology. The language is terrifying. At the end of history, Yahweh, probably through the servant, will arrive like a warlord, armed for battle, consumed with rage. The text says that when he arrives, he will utter a war cry, a blood-curdling scream, and then he will slaughter and thrash his enemies with terrible, sovereign fury, and no one, no one will weep for them. And I know that we're not accustomed, comfortable speaking about God in these terms. We tend to leave the wrath and judgment of God as the unspoken assumption, right? Of that embarrassing flaw in God's character that we should heavily qualify and only mention one or, one or two times a year so as to not scare off the newcomers. But there is no getting around the fact that the wrath of God is part of what it is that makes God glorious and that it is his wrath that will bring his glory back to the center of reality. And you just need to know that his wrath will be included in the lyrics of the songs that we sing in the kingdom. We will sing about that. I think that's the implication. I think that's why it begins, verse 10, singing, singing to Yahweh a new song. Those lyrics will include the slaughter, which is not unusual or, or, or immoral. This, this has happened often in the history of God's plan. Exodus 15, a song about the slaughter of the Egyptians. Judges chapter 5, a song about the slaughter of the Canaanites. Revelation 15, a song about the slaughter of the enemies of God at the end of the age. Why? Because this is worth singing about. Are we too soft to sing songs like that? Are we too politically correct in our day to sing songs of God, the warrior king, who will thrash his enemies and restore the earth to its paradise-like conditions? Maybe now's not the time for that. Maybe singing and writing songs like that just doesn't feel possible in our current condition, knowing that we too deserve the wrath and judgment of God, but one day we will sing songs about that, and it will be good, and it will be right, and it also will bring him glory. And so you see it, don't you? You look at the text here, Verses 10 through 13, and, and you see it, don't you? Seeing the future nations filled with praise and joy, declaring the victory and the glory of Yahweh, seeing that this is going to happen in the future, this does something for us today, does it not? Does this not at all shape and shift our perspective at all? It has to, it does. But you see, beloved, this, this gives us perspective. Things will not always be as they are today. It one day will be like verses 10 through 13. The best is yet to come. So don't you see, no matter what you must endure in this life, no matter what you must suffer in this life, 
No matter what you must lose in this life, it is but a temporary loss. It is but a momentary affliction. Because when we get here in the future, beloved, there will be nothing that you have lost or suffered that will not be fully restored. Certainty number three. Certainty number three that fortifies our faith, satisfies our souls, notifies the wicked of the wrath to come. Number three, the guaranteed salvation of the spiritually blind. The guaranteed salvation of the spiritually blind. Because you know, if you have been catching on to the themes of Isaiah, you know that spiritual blindness has been a major theme in the book since chapter 6. Do you remember that? Major theme. Because in that chapter, chapter 6, Yahweh declared that as a punishment upon his people, he would inflict them with a spiritual blindness so severe that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. Remember that? And so severe... Would this blindness be, by the way, that eventually the people of Israel would crucify and kill their own Messiah? But you see, here now in verses 14 through 17 is the portrayal of the removal of that blindness from the people of Israel. One day it will be removed. Notice where God goes first in verses 14 and 15. It's a glimpse of the future destruction coming to earth. But verse 14, notice it's the patience of God as he restrains his wrath. Look at the text. He says, I have been silent for a long time. I have kept silent. I have restrained myself like a woman in labor. I have groaned. I have gasped. I have panted together. What is he saying? Meaning what, God? Meaning that although he restrains his wrath at this moment, it's not as if he doesn't notice what's happening. Did you see that? It's not as if he doesn't care or notice what's happening. Although God is largely silent and restrains the avalanche of his fury. Notice he's like a woman in labor. He describes himself as a woman in labor. He writhes. He groans, he gasps, he pants as he restrains his anger. In other words, he has a rage so intense that it almost takes his breath away. That's crazy language because God is not a woman, nor a woman in labor, nor does he have lungs. The point is, God is not indifferent to the evil that he sees as he delays his vengeance, but he will not always delay. Verse 15, I will lay the mountains and hills in ruins and all of their vegetation I will dry up. I will turn the rivers into coastlands and their lakes I will dry up. You want to talk about climate change? Here it is. You understand the Bible is really, really clear about this. When God intervenes in the future, it will be nothing less than the unraveling of creation itself. You know that, right? Isaiah 24, 32, 
34, Jeremiah 25, Zephaniah 1, Matthew 24, and almost all of the book of Revelation. It will literally be a nightmare come true, a catastrophic meltdown of the entire created order. I, I take this literally, and you should too. Look at the text. Mountains and hills will be destroyed. Vegetation of the earth will be scorched and burned. Bodies of water on the earth will disappear and vanish and be no more, leaving the earth a veritable wasteland. This will literally be the uncreation of creation. As God rips open the cosmos and lays it naked and bare in the fires of his wrath. It's called the tribulation. And that was not invented by the Left Behind series. Jesus spoke about the tribulation. This is real. It is real. And you might know people who will be in it. I'm serious. You might know people in your life right now who will be in it. Hard-hearted, rebellious people who reject the gospel and resist his grace, spiritually dead slaves to sin under the wrath of God. You understand, church, unless something radical and supernatural happens to these people, they take their chances in the tribulation, and after that, there's only the lake of fire to look forward to. This is real. Unless something happens to them. The same thing that will happen to the people of Israel at the end of the age. Look at verse 16. Yahweh says, I, literally, the, the grammar suggests this, I will cause the blind to walk in a way they have not known. And in paths they have not known, I will cause them to walk. I will turn their darkness into light and jagged places into plains. These are the things I will do for them and I will not abandon them. Do you know what that is? Only the greatest revival at the end of history when the people of Israel get saved en masse as a whole. Moses predicted that in Deuteronomy 30. Paul confirmed it in Romans chapter 11. This is literally the future lifting of the curse of blindness. And, and notice, look at the vivid descriptions of what God has to do to save a sinner from destruction. Look what he says, verse 16. I will cause the blind to walk in a way they have not known and in paths they have not known. What is that? What is way and paths? It has to be God's word, right? It has to be God's word. Deuteronomy 8, 6, and you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways. It is the word of God. And you understand, you can see from the text from God's perspective, Israel had never known or walked in his way, had they? Not really. Stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted people, just as we ourselves once were before Christ, rescued us. And yet the day is coming, beloved, when the spiritual blindness of Israel will be removed. You, you know that, right? You believe that, I hope, that this is exactly what he's describing. And, and, and what does he mean by cause the blind to see and walk in paths they have not known? What is that other than the miracle of regeneration? What is that other than being born again? 
to be made alive, to set free from spiritual darkness and slavery to sin. That's what this is. And so I just got to ask you, I have to ask you, has this blindness-removing, soul-awakening work happened to you? Has this happened to you? Don't just assume so. Has it happened to you? Because how you tell if it has is how you respond to the word of God. Is it the way that you walk or does it get in the way of where you want to walk? Notice what else has to happen. Verse 16, he, God says, I, I will turn the, the darkness into light before them, jagged places into a plain. These are the things I will do for them and I will not abandon them. I mean, what are these but graphic depictions of the reversal of spiritual death? That's exactly what this is. Because you understand when God saves a soul through the gospel of a son, the curse is lifted, light breaks in, the rocky path of sin with its miseries and sorrows and tangles and thorns is made free, is made level and smooth. You are freed from the wrath and judgment of sin. Has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Because don't, don't take this the wrong way. I don't care necessarily if you prayed a prayer when you were five. I don't care necessarily that you were baptized. I don't care necessarily that you've been going to church your whole life long and you know where stuff is in the Bible. The only thing I care about is if you are born again. If you have been made alive. If light has broken in on your soul. That's the only thing that matters. Is that you or are you, are you more like the person of verse 17? Verse 17, mark my words, they will turn back and they will be ashamed with shame who trust in idols, who say to graven images, Atta Elohenu, you are our gods. Idolatry. Idolatry. So which are you? Which are you? I'm just going to push you into the corner. Which are you? Are you verse 16 or are you verse 17? Which are you? Are you the awakened soul walking in the light or are you the soul in darkness? Verse 17, clutching to your idols. And if you are the person of verse 16, well, that certainly is perspective, isn't it? If you're verse 17, then the only thing you have to look forward to is everlasting shame and the time is now to repent. But if you are verse 16, if you are verse 16, beloved, that just really gives us perspective, doesn't it? Because you see, if you are a recipient of the blindness-removing, soul-awakening power of Jesus Christ, that literally means that the deepest dilemmas of your life have been resolved. Doesn't it? Isn't that what that means? You are no longer spiritually dead or a slave to your sin. That was big. The wrath of God that was once against you has now been removed and placed upon his son. That was big. 
Your infinitely long criminal record of sins has been permanently deleted and canceled. That is big. You are sons and daughters of the living God through the adoption fee of the blood of Christ. That is massive. You are reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul and your future is secure. Don't you see? Don't you see? That is theology that changes us. That is theology that gives us perspective, is it not? And what that means, what that means for us is that you understand you've only experienced a part of your salvation and the best is yet to come, right? And what that does is free us to look at our fears, to look at our pains, to look at our losses, to look at our struggles, to look at our trials right in the face. And we look at all of those things in our life that grieve us and pain us and, 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 just, and, and, and sadden us and crush us. We look at those things and sometimes even with tears in our eyes, we smile the smile of faith knowing that the day will come when those things one day will no longer be. And what that does is give us the power to persevere another day. Number four, real quick, and then we're done. Certainty number four, the gracious invitation to the wicked to repent. The gracious invitation to the wicked to repent. And, and it makes sense that, that God would end the chapter this way, doesn't it? With a call to repent to his people. After unfolding for them this delectable banquet in the first 17 verses, it just makes sense that now he would call his people to stop eating out of dumpsters, to end the love affair they have with idols. You can hear him plead with his people. Verse 18, look at the text. Oh, deaf people, listen. And oh, blind people, look that you may see. Do you see that? They were in need of the very blindness-removing power that the servant would perform. He calls them blind and deaf. You are deaf and blind. You cannot hear the truth. You cannot see what is true, my people. You are the reason why the servant has to come. And you can see this is a call to repent and that they don't have to wait to the end of the age to be reconciled to God. But here's the thing about this is that they were not so persuaded that they were really as bad as the prophets made them sound. So Yahweh has to humble them. Verse 19, he says, who is blind except my servant? And who is deaf like my messenger I send? Who is blind like the one who was bought and blind like the servant of Yahweh? Who do you think that servant is? It has to be Israel. It's his people. And three times God asks, who is blind like them? Who is blind like them? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Nobody is blind like them. They are the blindest of the blind, the deafest of the deaf, to which someone could reply, seriously? That's a bit much, don't you think? I mean, how are we more blind than the pagan nations in foreign lands? How are we more blind than them? Now, touche, verse 20. What I mean is, I know your version will sound a little different than this, but it says, you have seen many things, Israel. You have seen many things, and you do not keep them. Your ears are open, but no one is listening. 
Do you see what he's after there? Israel, you have seen and you have heard so many things in your history and you don't care. You don't keep them. You are blind and deaf. You don't obey. You don't listen. You don't care. This has been, been true ever since God gave them his word. Verse 21. Therefore, verse 22, this is why you're in the mess you're in. This is why you're in exile at this moment. That's why you're in Babylon today. Verse 23. Yahweh pleads with this people, knowing that it's going to fall on deaf ears. Look what he says. Look how he just reasons with this people. Who among you will listen to this? Who among you is going to pay attention to this? Who will listen from here on out? And Yahweh already knows the answer. Very few. Very few. Self-righteous and delusional, refusing to hear the truth. And so Yahweh drops the hammer in verse 24. This is going to hurt, but it's what they needed to hear. Look at the text. Who has given Jacob as spoil? Who has given Israel to the plunderers? Who did that? What does the text say? Yahweh did. I did that. You know why you're in Babylon? Because I put you there. I gave you. I am the one who gave you as plunder to the pirates of Babylon. And do you know why I did that? Because you were not willing to walk in my ways and you would not listen to my law. Therefore, they forced God's hand to bring his wrath. Verse 25, he poured out the heat of his anger upon them and the strength of battle. And notice, this is how tragic their condition was. It, literally the, it, the wrath of God, it scorched them all around, but they did not know it. It burned them, but they did not take it to heart. Meaning what? Meaning by the time God sent them to Babylon, they were so calloused by sin and drunk with idolatry, they couldn't even feel pain anymore. At least not enough to bring them to repentance. And that's the end of the chapter. And it ends the opposite of how it started. I close with this. It ends the opposite of where it started, right? Because it, it started with the servant, didn't it? And the servant is Jesus Christ, the secret weapon of the plan of salvation itself. And when he returns, he will regain what Adam lost. He will fix what Adam broke. He will break the serpent's spell. He will lift the devil's curse. And when he appears, he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe tears from every eye. He will reign as king and rule the world. He will restore all of the planet to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. What does that do for us? What does that do for us today, knowing that this is going to happen? What does it do but... Fortify our faith and satisfy our soul and notify the wicked that the wrath of God is about to come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for texts that we would have never chosen on our own, grateful for untold riches and treasures 
I pray, oh Lord, I pray that we would do the the work of heavy theological lifting in our own lives. I pray that we would do the work of scouring and meditating and pondering on the sacred text that we might be strengthened and built up and edified and because we understand, oh Lord, that the truth, meditating on the truth, truths even like this, give us the courage to face the terrors of a fallen world. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us love the servant, to love the son, to love Jesus Christ above all things, that we would be enamored with him, knowing that the more infatuated with him we become, the more we become transformed into his image. And so we ask for that in our lives, that you may be put on display. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.